I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're very welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast at the Irish Examiner. Today, I have the great pleasure of the company of Theo Dorgan. I suppose many of you will be familiar with Theo and his work as one of Ireland's leading poets. He's won multiple awards. Uh, But he has also worked as a lecturer, translator, documentary, screenwriter, and among his work is a fascinating account of a transatlantic crossing, sailing for home, a voyage from Antigua to Kinsale. It's always sailing for home, Theo, back to Cork. Trying to get to heaven before they close the door. (laughs) And and the subject of Cork, just briefly, you're an art man boy, and I I see that this year they're celebrating the the triumvirate of Lord Mayors of Cork at the time of Troubles, McSweeney, McCurtain, and the man who's often forgotten, Don Logo Callaghan. Don Logo. Yeah. The first Don Logo. Prior to, yeah. Don Logo Ham. The later Don Logo, yeah. Um, I'm just a quote from you here, Theo, because I have been fascinated about this for a while, and this was uh, your good self in the wake of the, uh, what was then believed to be an earthquake uh, general election 2011. You said, I think we're going through a great change. The Irish people have dealt the first decisive blow to the old politics. The biggest political party and the biggest political organisation in the island has been dealt a death blow and the next time out, the exact same thing will happen to Fine Gael. Nothing has persuaded me that Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael or a great chunk of Labour understands just exactly A, how desperate the situation is, B, how powerless the old politics is to deal with it and C, what's coming down the line. People are going through a strange slow motion crash of the state. They've dealt with one of the great monoliths. They're now scrupulously giving the other monolith in the old politics its shot. And when that proves itself, as it absolutely will, I'm completely certain it is a busted flush, then the new politics will happen. So it seems to me this is an interim moment in a long unfolding process of change. That was you in 2011, Theo, and some people would suggest that what unfolded last Saturday was uh, more or less exactly what you were forecasting there. Just I was very brave when I was younger. <laughs> or as, as, as Leonard Cohen said uh, when he was touring around at 75, last time he was there 15 years earlier when he was a crazy mixed up uh, kid. 60-year-old with a head full, <laughs> 60-year-old man with a head full of foolish dreams. Yeah, yeah that's what he said. Well, I suppose I was part right. And, but it's no more than an awful lot of people understood at the time. It, the, the difficulty, I think, Mick, is that we sort of soaked quietly into having a professional political class. And it's fallen into the delusion that it owns the state. It's not just the TDs, it's TDs and advisors and higher civil servants, some journalists. Um, there is a kind of a state class there and they control the discussion. And the problem with controlling the discussion is you begin to work with neater and neater refinements of it and you lose touch with the reality of it. Now, I'm sure that Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney and Pascal and so on, I'm sure they actually believe the economy is doing well because they can show out figures. That exactly, they stats. But they're not looking at what it means out on the ground where people are being gouged by in rents 
whole blocks of apartments have been bought up by vulture funds and they're not called vulture funds for nothing. And they completely missed the point. I'm astonished that people were surprised at the vote Sinn Féin got. Were you surprised? I wasn't. I wasn't in the least surprised because people, you see, the last time out, people put a lot of faith in independence. They thought that somehow independence might help to break the logjam. But then you get confidence and supply and a neutered Labour Party, despite a few very decent individuals still in the party. But as a party, it's a neutral force. And so people thought the independents might crack the game open and allow their real concerns to be heard. And it didn't happen that way. They were sporadically, some of them got some things through, but they saw that against the, the massed ranks of Tuscany, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, that there was no breakthrough. So people did the next logical thing. They said, well, you know, who might? I don't think people believed, oh, Butch and Fianna in and everything will be better. They said, well, something might happen. And crucially, a lot of that was in the 18 to 35 age cohort who have no memory of the war and its atrocities on all sides, who have no baggage in that sense. They're looking purely at the world as it is in front of them, unmediated by any rhetorical sleight of hand or any spin doctoring. And they're looking at the world and they're saying, well, the economy is booming. How come the health service is so screwed up? The economy is booming. How come I can't afford to put aside the money? rent a house. How come a guy who's looking for 1200 a month for me for this little house this year is looking for 1600 a month next year and there is no mechanism to shout stop? So people voted for that. I think it was a double vote. I think it was a vote in the hope that Sinn Féin might be in a position to implement some of the policy they put forward. And I also think of course, in the usual sneaky Irish way, it was a backhander to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael saying, see what we'll do to you if you don't do the right thing, you know? Yeah, and you mentioned the 18 to 35 age group, Theo, and, and no no uh, memory of the conflict in the North and uh, as an older generation perhaps would have in terms of Sinn Féin. But as well, would another element to it be that they did not have the same you know, kind of family allegiance that we've had down through the decades to the likes oh, of Fianna Fáil, Fianna and Labour. When Micheál Martin was writing his MA in UCC, Mechanic and MSF used to run in from time. We'd have a great conversation. And he was fascinated at the time by Fianna Fáil of the 1930s. You, you knew Micheál in, in UCC? Ah, yeah, I UCC. Yeah. He was behind, of course. He's a much younger man. <laughs> um, but he was fascinated by Fianna Fáil of the 1930s. In that brief period, when they came into power after the Civil War, and there was an extraordinarily well-mannered transition to the the, the party of the ex-gunmen, so to speak. Um, They were to the left of the Labour Party. They were the party for the men of no property, to use that famous phrase, which I think they borrowed from Wolf Tone. Um, And there was a genuine left impulse of social egalitarianism in, in, in Fianna Fáil at the time. In 1929, at L- in La Scala Theatre, a dev finally twigged what Connolly meant when he said, Ireland, as distinct from her people, means nothing to me. You know, he was a bit late coming to the party. He was. But, he, but you know, he got some of it. Um, and I always thought that, you know, if Michal had stuck to that, he'd, he'd just, I think of him as the great last leader of the Labour Party. Michal Martin. Yeah, in terms of his his instinctive sympathies for for I mean, remember Mick, Michal's father was a bus driver, you know. I mean, he was he was aware of what it was like to live week to week, month to month. But family allegiance, the family was Fianna Fáil, and so he fell into Fianna Fáil as much out of family piety, I believe. I mean, he can come up and contradict me. I don't mind him, 
used to being contradicted at this stage. Um, but I think his, his natural instincts, his political instincts were closer to what you would expect a Labour Party to believe. And some people would have suggested that since he took over Fianna Fáil, he brought them to the left, certainly compared to what they had been previously. Well, you see, this is this is what I'm edging towards. I mean, it was extremely courageous of him, given the amount of backwards women and backwards men he has in the party, to come out for a yes vote. In the repeal campaign, it was politically courageous and personally courageous, I imagine. And I admire him for the fact that he had to think it through. I mean, me, I, I didn't have to think it through. It's a position I've had for all my life, I suppose. But, you know, I admire the man who came to change his mind after a serious process of reflection. And so you take that and you take him trying to move the party centre-left. I think there was a perhaps unconscious instinct out there in the electorate to put it up to Fianna Fáil um, by voting for Sinn Féin. You know, if you want any credit, it, you need more radical policies. No, I have absolutely nothing to base that on. It's just a hunch. It's just an instinct. But it wouldn't be the first time in the history of this state that people ask for 50 euro and when they wanted 25, you know? Yeah, and I wonder, and as you say, you're putting that in the context of domestic politics and history, Theo. Is there something in it uh, that what we saw last Saturday is reflects shifts globally that we've seen in recent years? I was delighted to see that Ireland completely bucked the European trend in the last election. It voted decisively against nativist, populist, right-wing policies. It handed his hat to Peter Casey, 1.5%. The Irish Freedom Party didn't get a look in. Poor Gemma and poor John. Well, I mean, I don't know where it's going to leave them out on the far fringes. You're talking about General Doherty and John Waters. Indeed, there. indeed. Um, but... It's like that Sherlock Holmes story, the dog that didn't bark. The populist right-wing dog did not bark. Was it a populist left-wing Well, I'm not sure what it was. I think it was people voting their own best interests. I also think there's something else going on here, though, that I I have the view that there's a kind of an undeclared low-level civil war going on inside Sinn Féin Um, in this sense, and I don't mean anything dramatic by that now, that you have the old wrap the green flag round me on one side, and then you have very, very intelligent, careful progressives like Pierce Doherty and Don O'Brien and so on in there as well. And there's there's a struggle going on for the soul of Sinn Féin. And it'll be determined by whether or not the, the balance of power in the party shifts south. For too long, the balance of power in the party has been in Belfast um, with old boys, basically, who don't understand the south. I remember cringing for him when he was standing for election as president, when Martin McGuinness and one of the RT debates came up with, well, you down here. And I said, pal, you want to be president of you, do- we down here, you know, get a grip. Yeah. And there is there is a lack of comprehension in the North of, of you know, the fact that it may not be the full theological republic that's such a matter of faith to the old diehards, but it is a republic. It's a small, poor, battered republic, but it is a republic and it's our own. And why people don't think of building a better republic here so that it's a more attractive proposition as a move towards a united Ireland, rather than desperately trying to sway the bingo arithmetic 
Yeah, I think I agree. And that's I don't c- understand. That civil war uh, thing you talk about with No, no, and let's just no, say no, agree no, that no, that's an overdramatic way sorry, of putting yeah. it, but let it's me, a different let me put way yeah, I, I, I think there's no question there are two strands within mm. the party. One harking back to the, the, the nationalist element, not a, a nativist right-wing nationalism, but definitely nationalism. And you have that crowd, you have that second string, as you, you mentioned, the type of individuals that social justice and, and a left-wing uh, type of politics is, is their principal concern. And I just wonder, is it a question, particularly with Mary Lou MacDonald taking over, the further we move away from the conflict in the North, is that sort of left-wing element to it going to come into the ascendancy more? And, and, and effectively be the party down here, which some people would suggest is basically just replacing the Labour Party, but in a much, coming from a much stronger position than Labour ever was because of the, the two and a half party system we had here. Yes, but remember too that Labour had 37 seats only a few short years ago, the exact same amount that Sinn Féin has now. Fair point. And everybody's forgotten. People say this is a seismic, this is the end of the three party system. Nobody was saying that when Labour had the exact same number of seats. But that's because there was a more decisive difference between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. I think people are thinking it's a, a three-party system for the first time because you have roughly the same number of, of TDs in the three major parties. It's a replacement, but bear in mind that when people voted Labour in those huge numbers, they had the same expectations of Labour that they have of Sinn Féin now, that they do move decisively on pay, on the health service and on homelessness. So those were the expectations of Labour. Sinn Féin would do very well to stop and pause and look, Labour fell from 37 but to they'd, 6. They'd be coming in a from a, a stronger position too, Tio, though, wouldn't they? Well, they have... Numerically anyway. They, they have a higher percentage of the first preferences, but 25% of a poll of about 62% is a quarter, that's, you know, four out of six, that's, that's 15% of the population. Now, you know, parse it how you will, it doesn't mean that there's an, it's not, it can't be compared to the 1918 election where Sinn Féin swept the board. They swept the board, incidentally, because Labour stood aside, we, out of which we got the democratic programme, which Lenin would have hesitated to put to the February Duma, and by October I, it was too late. <laughs> he wouldn't. Sinn Féin no, then, is, it was, it was they, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and Sinn Féin now, yes. effectively. Well, but of course they had no intention of implementing the programme. Even Sean McEntee and, and Ernest Bloyd back in, as later in 66, it was just a hoist of a flag. Nobody ever really meant it. And in a way, that's the root of the problem. That's at the root of the problem. That right from the very start, the very first dial, they adopted a really clear, vibrant policy which they had no intention of implementing. And that precedent was set right from the very start, the first independent dial, just 101 years ago. So I think just to circle back a bit, maybe, and I mean, I'm just just one man looking at this. I have no credentials. I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a cephalogist. There's a P at the start of that. I love that word. But um, just, just the way I look at it, just as calmly as I can, Nothing really, I think, is going to change until and unless the either Fianna Fáil most likely, possibly, possibly Labour, a resurgent Labour under Aidan or whoever, Jed Nash maybe, um, gets it, that people now want to vote, not for the past, but for the present and for their futures. And that is, I think, the real decisive shift in 2011. People were voting finally for their own interests. 
And not in any foolish way. It was a very considered vote in the equal marriage referendum. It was a very considered vote in the repeal the eight referendum. People thought about it very carefully and then voted in overwhelming numbers. I think the days where you could count on your voters as canon father are dead and buried. And Sinn Féin will have to learn this lesson as well. You cannot take your votes or your electorate for granted. And I'm sure there are intelligent people in that party, as there are in all the parties. They'll sit back and look at it and say, well, can we deliver what we'd like to deliver? And if we can't, do we want to be blamed for not delivering it? So in, in which case, if that's the analysis, they'd be best to, to encourage a Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael coalition and be the, the hammer of the opposition, which would give them a strong position next time out. Or they could decide to attempt a coalition with Fianna Fáil and waste their energies and, to an extent, their credibility. I think it's clear that the, um, the Fianna Fáil rebels, if you want to call it that, won't carry the day. I think Martin will stand firm. McGrath will stand with him, and McGrath's the one who's most ambitious to replace Michal Martin. So I think if McGrath stands with him, um, then he has the party, and he seems, up to now, determined not to go into coalition. I think where he would need maybe do well to reflect is the is that Sinn Féin is in the process of transition. Um, the party, many members of the party, including some TDs, have blood on their hands. Um, they would do well to repent of it, I think, because they didn't kill anyone on my in my name or in the name really of anyone on the island. Um, and they were by no means the only sinners, and it's a bit sickening to see them held up as the only sinners when, you know, the British government and the loyalists have a lot to answer for um, equally with them. But, you know, it would be risky to repudiate it entirely in terms of the internal structures of the party, but I think it's the only, it's the right thing to do, and in some ways it's the politically the correct thing to do. Whether it's time to do that now, right in the heat of... Um, all the excitement of winning so many votes is another question. But people forget that even though the circumstances were different and they were coming out of a very bitter civil war, um, that Fianna Fáil made that transition. Um, and it wasn't long after Fianna Fáil came into power that Dev was interning his former comrades in the Curra. Very true. And it was, it, it was less than 20 years or so. Yes, in and 1932 I, they came into power in 45, it was 13 years. 13 years, 20 years since, yeah. since he had been literally comrades with them. But that's that's an interesting point, Theo, because some people would suggest we're now, what, 22 years out from the Good Friday Agreement and has that transition in Sinn Féin been slower than perhaps people, of particularly of an older generation who remember the Troubles, would find palatable? I don't know what what a reasonable period of time would be to let something like that slip away. Um, even if you're in the minds of somebody who was a, a volunteer who put their lives on the line as they saw it, it's not how I see it, but that's how they see it, um, to think that everything you fought for is slipping away, slipping away, that must be a strange thing to accommodate. So in the upper and the older echelons of the party, the transition to pure politics is psychologically a difficult one. Morally, I think it should be absolutely cut and dried, but that's easy for me to say from, the, from where I stand. Um, I think the problem is that the, the, the aspiration towards the United Ireland is a perfectly legitimate mm. political aspiration. 
Um, to do it by force or sleight of hand is just to store up trouble and impossibilities. And I've said for years the correct way to do it, the best way to do it would be to build a republic. That's, so it, that's more attractive than what's currently on offer and what will be on offer from a decaying England, an independent Scotland and a Wales that doesn't know where it is. Um, and I think that's feasible. Uh, I think it makes sense ecologically, a single island with, you know, an ocean boundary to keep out in diseases, animal diseases, plant-borne diseases, whatever, a common agricultural practice, a common cultural frame of reference, which which is far more common to us in the island than any connection to the, the British island is. So I think that's, it's certainly possible to work towards that. And as Westminster continues to abandon the North, to treat it with contempt and even Rocious. yesterday, firing yeah, I mean, they took away the best, the best, the yeah. best Secretary of State that they've had for twelve years because he wasn't Don, loyal enough to Boris. Because he wasn't loyal enough to Dominic Cummings. Oh, sorry, exactly, he, yeah. he, which is even more, <laughs> even more scary. So, yeah, yeah. But um, how that man has contrived not to fall under a bus makes me wonder about <laughs> the hand of fate. You know, you wonder where the hand of fate is these days. Uh, not that I'd wish him any absolutely ill. Absolutely not. Just no, retirement no. to his heavily EU subsidised family farm might be a good idea. Oh, yeah. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, I'm in danger of distracting myself. No, I think, Mick, you know that it makes perfect sense to have a single polity on this island. Let's just call it a single polity for a moment. It makes perfect sense, therefore, to take the territory that you do have access to, our little republic, and do a really good job on it. And then say, well, join us, you know, and use the um, the political capital that you gain by managing this republic well as a way of speaking to the post-war generations. And remember, in 10 years' time, which is 20 years' time, which is nothing in the history of a country, 20 years' time, you'll have two, three generations that were past the Belfast yeah. Agreement. And people will... There's no reason to think... There's, there's no reason to think that people coming out of a union, young people coming up through out of a unionist background are not going to make the same calculations that Irish people made in the, in last week's election. What is in my best interest? Yes, yes, tradition is grand and we'll keep it, you know, what we can of it. But where is my job coming from? Where is my house coming from? Where is my health service? The, the, the ordinary things that in our day-to-day -day life all of us care about. So, I don't know. I, I think the big learning prospect now is, for, is probably for Sinn Féin. Fine Gael have made it clear that they have no intention of changing. They, Not only that, I think they, they, they see... And, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's a point of view. They see a niche that can be carved out for them, what you might call in the right of the centre, exclusively for a particular... But I don't think it's even in those terms. I think the, most of them just don't know poor people. Most of them are they're more likely... If you're in Fine Gael, you're more, you're more likely to be... And I know I'm going to offend a lot of day-to-day -day Fine Gael voters, but I'm talking about in the operational lands of the party. You're far more likely to have a few houses rented out than to be trying to rent a house, you know. Is, is, is that fair? It is, I'm afraid, yes, it is. And and you see that in the incomprehension. Owen Murphy, I'm, God, forgive me, I nearly said the late Owen Murphy, I only mean it in the political sense. Owen Murphy appears to genuinely believe he was doing a brilliant job in housing. And, I mean, how do you get past that lack of understanding? And I think there is a certain there is a certain weight to the charge that it is the party of the entitled. It doesn't mean everyone in the party feels entitled, but it is the party to which the entitled towards which the entitled gravitate. Finnfall is more mixed, I think, in the the demographic that it attracts. The DNA. But certainly, it's very clear that a lot of people who feel utterly powerless see 
at least some hope of change in Sinn Féin. And a surprising number of people wanted Sinn Féin to do well, but didn't vote for their local Sinn Féin candidate. I'm picking this up around the town, you know? Yeah. In the sense that when you have a stalemate, when you have a situation that is not improving, then deal a wild card and see what happens. The, the other thing in that regard, Theo, is in, in terms of a brand, um, the, the volume of votes, now I know some of that was down to the fact that there wasn't second candidates in constituencies that they should have had, but apart from that, the volume of votes for a number of candidates, for instance, we have uh, one who was on holidays during it. In terms of the brand of a party, it seems to have had a m- bigger impact than at any other time. Even, for example, go back to the days of uh, Bertie Ahern. Yeah. To a certain extent, the popular vote there was for Bertie Ahern rather than the brand of Fianna Fáil. But here, no, and, and I know, to, the other contradict myself slightly, Mary Lou was a brand in herself, but the brand of the party was so powerful to have garnered that level of a vote. That issue of people being unhappy with what's out there and, and this is the vehicle one way or the other, it seems to have uh, to really um, hit true. Well, it has, but I, I, I think you, you, you went past a step there, maybe, Mick. The fact is that everybody in the country now knows, everybody in the country knows who the leader of Sinn Féin is. Right? Point, yeah, yeah. And even, you know, unconsciously, you just you know, Mary Lou. No one says Mary Lou MacDonald. No one says Michal. Yeah. And if they say Leo, it's not likely to be um, warmly. Yeah. Put it that way, yeah. right? Um, so... We, we, we tend to forget people, people who think a lot about politics uh, assume that everybody goes out voting coming from the same level of engagement that they have. Absolutely. Yeah. Mary Lou MacDonald comes across as warm. She comes across as caring. She comes across as capable. She's a strong woman at a time when it's, there's never been a better welcome for a strong woman, for men and for women. Um, and she has that marvellous combination of cheekiness and stability. And that appeals to people. You see, the, the, the one thing that we always forget, me included, I mean, I would say we know, is charisma. Yeah. And Leo Varadkar has no charisma. Now, it was, it was a bit foolish of his um, candidate in Dublin Bay North to describe him as autistic. Um, ah, it yeah. was political was... suicide in, in a number of ways, and it was deeply offensive. To, I mean, I was hugely offended. I have an autistic nephew that I dote on, and he's a very bright lad. Um, but she was trying to articulate a he's sense a, he, that he, the man he lacks be socially awkward for charisma. Lacks, yeah, yeah. yeah. Michal Martin has flashes of charisma, you might say, but Mary Lou has it bucket loads. As, again, Bertie Hearn type of stuff. And people like that. They feel, you know, they feel you'd be in good hands that that you could have a good argument with her or that she'd listen to you and she projects all this warmth, you know. Um, Theo, the other thing, you've touched on history a bit there and um, also some people would suggest that at the outset of the election campaign, the fallout from what was the botched RIC commemoration had some influence. I don't know how much it had. What did you think about... Well, first of all, let me put it this way. I think... I don't think anybody would suggest that the way it was handled by the government was competent or sensitive or inclusive. But leaving that aside, the the, the concept of having a commemoration for the RIC, I mean, which I, I think got lost in the whole thing, is there a case to be made for it? Do you think? There, I think... There's a case to be made for it. Whether it's a case I'd make, um, 
I don't. I don't think I, I. I think I probably wouldn't make the case for it. I think um, it's a dignified memorial service for the dead, um, an expression of genuine regret that any lives have to be lost in pursuit of them would be appropriate. Um, to construct an equivalence for a state to construct an equivalence between those who who were prepared to put their lives on the line to create it and those who put their lives on the line to prevent its creation seems to be a very odd ask. Um, it would be kind of, you know, asking, you know, if, I think people would think it odd if on the 4th of July, for instance, the Americans had um, raised an, a large monument to the Redcoats who attempted to prevent the emergence of the United yeah. States of America. I think people would consider that odd. See, I understand where it's coming from because reconciliation is is always a good base to build a new politics on. And it only matters not in terms of what about or about the past. It's in case of who do we want to be. I think we do want to be people who say, well, you know, we regret all deaths, especially deaths for political ends. Um, I don't think it's a sensible or a sensitive thing to um, create an equivalence between, let's say, the district inspector of the RIC in Swanland Bar, or we make it more pointed, Inspector Swansea of the RIC who led the death squad that shot Thomas McCurtain in his bed, and Terence McSweeney dying on hunger strike in Brixton. It strikes the, the wrong atavistic note in people. You know, it's only a hundred years since the War of Independence. And in that it's only a hundred years. Yeah. And when you consider, I mean, that is actually a very short time. Um, and that's not long enough for the folk memory to shake down and come to, um, come to, I remember being at a, 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 a writer's workshop in Belmullet with the Roddy McCarley Social and Writing Club from West Belfast. A, right? <laughs> a gas bunch of boys. And uh, this boy came up and I, I was reading poems and he says, hey, you're from Cork, hey? Said, yeah, I said, yeah. Hey, was the North Cork militia broke the United Men in '98? You know? <laughs> I looked at him. And next thing I thought, I just grabbed him by lip, the lapel and says, "I wasn't fucking there." <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of looked and said, "All right, fair, right enough, right enough. That was out of order. That was out of order." <laughs> they were great lads, you know. But this this sense of history, you know, we, we think we think that what's done is done, and we've moved on from it. It's not like that, and there's still a strong folk memory of the RIC, of the TANS, of the Oxys. I was disgusted by the conflation of RIC with TANS and TANS well, yeah. with Oxys. Yeah. That was ridiculous. That's just bad history. That reminds me of the rubber bandits, ooh, ah, up the right, you know, which some people out there still don't understand was a satire, yeah, right? Yeah. And that was primitive thinking. But at the same time, underneath it was a sense that you, it's a false equivalence. And what of this idea that people put forward that if you were to take the average RIC man, the farmer's son from rural Ireland, whomever, who joined up on the basis of it was either that or immigration, the older brother got the farm, the the, the sisters had to be yeah. married off, the nature society. We all get that, you know. Yeah. It was the same fellow, it was his other, it was his younger brother who was out in the hills with Tom Barry. You know, and he had another brother who was a post office clerk in London and his sister went for the Indian Civil Service and you have to make a living as things stand. I mean, we all understand that, but that isn't really the question. I mean, if you're bringing it down to the individual level, then you're talking about individual commemoration and recognition and yeah, families. Which is what someone in, suggests in, in 2016, in 2016, Michael D did a brilliant thing. He said, I will not apologise for the men and women who in all sincerity put their lives on the line to found the state that we now enjoy. 
However, it's not possible to go back and refight old wars to argue this or that for Redmond, this or that for Piers and Connolly. The question we should be asking is the question they were asking, who do we want to be? Who do we want to be? They didn't die for the past. They didn't die for Ramelli's bloody field. They didn't die for the flight of the earth. They didn't die for Kinsale 1601. If to the extent that they died and the extent they have to bear the blood guilt of having killed, it was for the future. And it's a, it's a, it was a, I think his point was it would be a repudiation of their intentions if we also were not looking forward. And when you think of it like that, um, it's not helpful to make an equivalence between the RAC and the Garda Síochána. The Garda Síochána were the voluntarily unarmed police force of the new state. It wasn't a continuity. It was a rupture. It was a complete rupture. They were not the armed militia of a colonial power. They were the unarmed police force, our own, to guard the peace. They were not there to be constables. They were there to guard the peace. And that equivalence, I thought, was dangerous and foolish to try and suggest a continuity from the RAC. That betrays a controlling mentality. And that suggests an unconscious sense of continuity between the government and the former colonial power. You know, that it doesn't, you know, and it it grounds that sense of rebelliousness in the Irish mind, which takes, which finds expression in no matter who you vote for, the government always gets in. (laughs) Or whatever it is, I'm again it, you know. And I think it was for all these unfortunate reasons that botched and misdaken uh, attempt at a commemoration hit all those raw nerves, you know. I th- yeah, that though definitely and seems they, to be. You know, there's a there's a committee of intelligent and sensitive historians and others, you know, like Dermot Ferreter, Martin Mansard, and so on, who have thought these things through carefully. Had all the hallmarks of the same fool of a spin doctor who went to Google Translate for the Irish version of the video in 2016. <laughs> that's that's right, yeah, yeah. Shallow thinking. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. L- more, more, spend more on the history books, lads, and less on the Louis Copeland suits, you yeah. know? Tell me one thing, Theo, because um, it, it occurs to me, you're talking about Ireland type of country you want. I just happened to watch the other night a recording there. Tommy Tiernan interviewed Michael D. last Saturday. And I have to say, but in, in, in terms of his formality and his informality, we're lucky to have him. I know he's a mate of yours. We're lucky to have somebody like that to at least present to the outside world a version of Ireland that we'd like to think to, to properly reflects us. us. Yeah. What we present think about the best Well, exactly. Sorry. What yeah. I, any objective person looking at, I mean, by me to mean a person from outside Ireland looking at, would have been astonished. Just the love the audience had for him, you know? And it's not a kind of pat him on the head, isn't he lovely? I mean, people engage with what he says. Absolutely. And I mean, there, there, there's a microcosm, if you like, a man whose father couldn't get work because he took the wrong side in the Civil War, a man who was fostered out effectively to his aunts, who knew rural poverty at its grimmest and most extreme. He goes and gets a clerkship in the ESB. Then he goes to university, he ends up university. He was, to many, the more cynical, the men who know, in his own party, they thought he was a joke. When he was made Minister for Culture, they thought they'd parked him safely off. Somebody suggested he'd go mad, but, but he actually... Well, was, there you was, go, but brilliant. what happened? What happened is when Michael D was Minister for Culture was when it we began to ask, do we want to be a society or do we want to be an economy? And it was true there. People forget that it's true poetry, true painting, true music, true film, true theatre 
that a people express itself. What do we do when we come home from work? We, if we have work, and you know it, that's less of a problem than it used to be, but it's a real problem still for many people. Come home from work, the children are fed. What do you do? You listen to music, or you go to a gig. You pick up the box and you learn a new tune. You, you scream at the uncle upstairs with the guitar to keep it down, right? You go to the pictures, you know? Maybe you paint a picture. Maybe you write something. You sit down with a book. This is a country where culture is. Culture and sport are the things that we reach for when we want to feel at our human best. And as Minister Michael D. resourced that, and he gave it respectability, he gave it weight at the cabinet table, Curiously enough, the most powerful minister after him was John O'Donoghue, um, you know, who really got it um, for all his, which when you think he was a former minister for justice, it's quite extraordinary, but he's a curious man anyway. Um, and I think that the love that people have for him and the respect that people have for Michael D um, is founded on the fact that he spoke up for who we actually are, not the cynical descriptions of us that economists and other prophets of doom offer us, but our own knowledge of who we actually are. I mean, man's president of Galway United all these years. Now, Galway United haven't exactly been sitting the FAI <laughs> on fire for all these years, but he never wavered, yeah. you know. I mean, when he goes to the matches, you know, he's there at the other end. He's animated. If you ever see a cut, he's there, he's there, whatever, he kick the ball, every poke of the hurley, you know. And just as you would be, or just as I would be. But he's a... Only serious thinker. Oh, yeah. I was in, in, in Athens for um, when he made his state visit to Greece February the year before last. And it, he was given an honorary doctorate at the University of Athens. And a friend of mine who was a poet and a professor in the, um, in the Kapodistri University in Athens, the day after she taught her postgraduate class in modern rhetoric, she taught his speech as a masterpiece of modern rhetoric with the added advantage that the man actually means it. <laughs> right? It was, I mean, they didn't want to let him go home. Yeah. They got him. With Cullum Machanomra and Paula Meehan and a few others, we organized a concert of mu Irish music and poetry and Greek music and poetry in the Megaron, this huge theatre in Athens, through the embassy. And um, every single person in that audience waited to shake hands with him before going home. They could not get enough of him. And that's the kind of man we have out there speaking for us. And the beauty of it is that that really do work, does work, you know, that when people meet him, they think they're meeting us. I mean, when you think of all the alternatives. Yeah. Fairness. Dear Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> well, finally, Theo, um, you made some predictions in, in, in terms of the 2011, as, uh, as I suggested, some of I which would definitely come Jeez. true. Having said that, now we're going to ask you for another prediction. You being a, a North man, man, you being a Cork man and all that. Um, it's going to be both the All-Ireland, isn't when, it? When will, when will your native county next win the hurling All-Ireland? I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you, Mick, if I had any clear idea I'd be over in Paddy Powers. <laughs> it's very hard to tell, isn't it? You see, it, it's an egg... It, you could, you could, you could, you could make a political idea. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have had all the time in the world to go out there and actually listen to what people are saying. To actually listen and hear what people are saying. Cody has done it right for the last twenty years. Are they studying Cody? No, they're not. Fair it's point. as simple as that. You go to Kilkenny. A friend of mine, Mickey Gorman, a great poet and a great sportsman over in Galway, sent me a photograph last year. 
It was the beginning of the school year in Kilkenny. And it was, you know, a mass for the school for some school in Kilkenny, right? And what the photograph was the outside of a church, right? Presumably the kids were outside. There was some two hundred hurleys leaning up against the gable wall of the church. You know? When I when I grew up in Cork, every young fellow had a hurley. It's not the case anymore. So they have to get down to the under twelves, the under fourteens, the under sixteens, and there'll be no holding us. And the strength of Cork hoarding wasn't due to some sort of divine intervention or divine favour. It was because every kid had a hurley. And all they have to do is look at that phenomenal camogie team. The best hurling being played in Ireland at the moment is being played in senior level camogie. Those women are powerful. They're imaginative. They're fearless. They're skilled. You know, it's 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 it's, it's extraordinary. Maybe the solution is just rip out the entire management board and put in the camogie management. <laughs> but it has to be. I mean, I understand too. Kids these SFs, they're bewildered by the number of choices they have. Yeah. Right? But when I was younger, I refuse to say young, that's seeding the past. When I was younger, hurling had glamour. And if you have glamour, you have the young. So... It's it's a simple task and a very complicated one at the same time. You have to restore the glamour of hurling. Fair point. Tia, listen, it's been a, a huge pleasure. Thank you very much for coming in to talk to us today. That's it for today, folks. I'd like to thank producer Declan Conlon, JJ Vernon and Sound. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify or the other platforms. You can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at or on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you again soon. Some people take the straight path in life. But at Arizona State University, we respect your twists and turns. They make our online students more driven to excel in their professional lives. That's why our personalized suite of services empowers you with innovative resources and staff that sticks with you. Make your next turn with one of our 300-plus programs at ASU, number one in innovation for nine consecutive years. Visit us at asuonline.asu.edu to learn more.